I invite you now to stand with me and, uh, as, and take your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis 20. I forgot to tell you to do that at the beginning. Uh, we're going to look at all of Genesis 20 this morning. Uh, and there's not really a good just section for me to pull out and read. So I'm going to read the whole story because it is a contained event here in Genesis 20. This is the Word of the Lord. From there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to his wife, to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent man? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. For, for uh, now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you and you shall live But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see? That you, uh, that you did this thing. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me at every place to which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you dwell uh, where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Let's pray together. Father, we begin this morning by praying for the faces that we saw on our screen moments ago. Both missionaries and unreached people groups living this morning around the world. Many in hostile places. Some in places where if they choose, if they wanted to hear the gospel, they would not be able to because they would not know to whom to go. Would you help us, God, continue the efforts of reaching the lost and proclaiming the gospel to a lost and dying world? God, would you bless our missionaries today as they serve you overseas? Would you call more to go? The laborers are few but we ask that you would send out laborers into your harvest because we know it is your harvest, oh God. Would you help us to give generously so that they may go? Father, would you 
Also help us this morning as we approach your word. Let us recognize this truth today that you are a God who judges sin, but also a God who offers immense grace to us time and again. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. This morning's sermon is entitled, A Familiar Story, because if you have been with us during this Genesis series, you have likely recognized many pieces of this story as one that was already told. In Genesis 12, we saw Abraham do a very similar thing to what he does here in Genesis 20. Back in the mid part of the 1900s, there was a famous baseball manager named Yogi Berra. Berra was asked at one point to comment on uh, his, uh, the best players on his rival's team, namely Mickey Mantle and Roger Maris, who repeatedly hit back-to-back home runs in the early part of the 1960s. And Berra exclaimed, it was deja vu all over again. And that's what we have here in Genesis 20. Deja vu all over again. Abraham, once again, some likely couple decades after his experience in Egypt, falling into the same sin. And if we read this account correctly, here's what we know. This may not even be the only other time Abraham did this because it was plotted from the beginning with his wife and at least half-sister and possibly adopted sister, Sarah, that when they go into this foreign land that God would show them that they would tell this tale, that they would lie in order to save themselves, not trusting in God for their protection, but trusting in their own creativity and in their own lie. And they've done this at least recorded here in the scriptures twice, once in Egypt and now in Abimelech's kingdom. Do you ever feel like As you read this story and experience this deja vu in Abraham's life, do you ever feel like this is emblematic of your walk with Christ? That you repeatedly maybe take two steps forward, but then take a giant step backwards. See, in this story in Genesis 20, we find the same pattern that we have seen time and again in our series in Genesis where we see sin, the judgment of God, and then the grace of God. And these three uh, characteristics of uh, this pattern are pronounced very clearly in this story again. So we will once again walk through these same three pieces of this pattern, but we also find this morning an encouragement to walk faithfully. Genesis 20 should not be used as an excuse For us to say, see, even Abraham fell into the same sin time and again. But this should be a cautionary tale for us. A warning. As we look at this event in Abraham's life, we should say, oh God, keep us from following in his footsteps. Help us to walk faithfully in the areas of our lives where we are so prone to sin. It seems obvious that this was an area that Abraham was prone to sin. And by the way, this is not the last time that we will see this same event unfold, but Abraham's son will do the same thing in coming chapters. 
Because the proclivity to sin, this this temptation that Abraham feels to, to lie about his relationship with his wife to protect himself is obviously one that was a great temptation for him. And while I doubt anyone in this room has sinned in that same way, we have all sinned and all feel these same draws to the same sins that we have committed over and over in our lives. So today will be an encouragement to, yes, understand the free grace, abundant grace upon grace that comes from God, but also to encourage us not to follow in these footsteps, but to recognize that Jesus Christ has defeated sin for us. And that we do, we do not have to fall into the same trap over and again. This story begins with the same sin again, where Abraham moves to a new area and once again lies about his relationship with Sarah. Verses one and two read, from there, Abraham journeyed towards the territory of Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Now, this verse one introduces this account as being uh, right after the events that took place in the preceding chapters, meaning this took place immediately after Abraham witnessed the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abraham here is 99 years old. His wife, Sarah, is 89 years old. They were within that year period of time where God has promised that he will bless Abraham and Sarah with their long-awaited son, Isaac. It is during this time that Abraham chooses to move. He is moving from the place known as Marm, where he has lived in the northern part of the Negev, south of Jerusalem, Uh, For quite some time, he is now moving on. It could possibly be the events that took place around the Dead Sea in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that has caused Abraham to move. We're not told why he moves. We're just told that he does. And these places that are listed in verse 1 are not actually very close to one another. This is a a wide stretch of land. It seems that Abraham is moving into territory that is not necessarily inhabited by many other people and that he sojourns in Gerar, which is a larger city in the northern part of the Negev. And for whatever reason, while he is there, he feels at least some threatening and lies about who his sister is. Now, if we go back to Genesis 12 and see the first time Abraham tells this lie, we see some similarities, but also some differences. In Genesis 12, 11, 13, we read, when when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me, but they will not let, uh, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. We see the same lie, that's the similarity between Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, but there are also some differences in this account. In Genesis 12, Abraham goes to, who is Abram at that time, goes with his wife who is Sarai at that time, down into Egypt because there's a great famine in the land. They didn't trust that God would provide for them in the land that he had provided, and so they flee to Egypt where the famine was not. We also see fear. There is no fear, at least yet, in Genesis 20 
all we're told is that they show up there and that they put on this same lie that they had previously rehearsed. So there was no famine. There was at least no fear yet expressed in Genesis 20, just the same old habits. But when we think about the differences between Genesis 12 and Genesis 20, the greatest difference is the difference within Abraham himself. While God has made a promise to Abraham before he goes into Egypt, when he was still in his homeland of Ur of the Chaldeans, and God calls him to go to the land that he will show him, God has made a promise to Abraham. The covenant has been spoken to Abraham, and Abraham is beginning to walk in it, but it is not until Genesis 15 that we're told that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. It's Genesis 15 and the surrounding events there where we see Abraham entering into, in its truest sense, the covenant with God. So the greatest difference between Genesis 12 and Genesis 20 is not some of the peripherals around the event, but what should be different in Abraham. We should read Genesis 12 as pre-covenant Abraham. And we should read Genesis 20 as post-covenant Abraham. To use modern terms, Genesis 12 would be before Abraham was saved, and Genesis 20 would be after Abraham was saved. That Abraham sins in one way in Genesis 12 before he has fully realized the extent of God's promise to him and believed it fully in faith, having it credited him as righteousness. But now he should know better. And yet it seems he does not. And he falls into this same sin. The Bible warns us about this. In Proverbs, the Bible warns us about this in several places. Proverbs 26, 11, I think is my favorite place. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. I think all of us in here that own dogs understand this, right? Dog will eat something it shouldn't eat, get sick, throw up. And what does it go back and do? It goes back and eats the thing that it just threw up and made it sick, right? I just love that. I recognize that's graphic. You're like, I don't want to think about that this morning. But it's a really good picture. It's the Bible, so I get to read it, right? It's a really good picture of how we are with our sin. That we know that it, is, it entraps us. We know that it damages us. We know that it carries these great temporal consequences. We know that it's disobedience to the Lord. And yet we return to it just like a dog who has gotten sick. And that's the same thing that Abraham does. And for so many, as we compare Genesis 12 to Genesis 20 and the pre-covenant and post-covenant Abraham, we think about that in our own lives And for so many of us, the same sins that plagued us before we came to faith in Christ are the same ones that we face after, that we still find ourselves returning to those same sins just as a dog returns to its vomit. Go back with me to something that I said last week. Last week when we were looking at the sin within Sodom and Gomorrah and and kind of Paul borrowing from that idea in Romans chapter 1 and and tracing in Romans 1 how uh, God turns mankind over to himself that even though we know what we should do, we don't do it and we embrace all sorts of evils and, and he expounds upon that evil of homosexuality that was so clearly present there in Sodom and Gomorrah but then he goes on to explain that there are 
other great evils in our lives. And I, I read these verses, I'm going to read them again. And after reading them last week, I said, you, you very well can find at least one of these in yourselves. And if you can't, then you're a liar. And that's the truth that all of us, at least before our lives with Christ, should be able to find one of these things here in Romans 1 that's true of us. Listen to this list. And it says, starting in verse 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to debased minds to do what not ought to be done. They are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. All of these sins deserve death. All of these sins deserve death. And all of our lives before we came to Christ, if you are in Jesus today, whether you're in this room or watching with us online, and you say, I know that I'm in Jesus today, but my life was marked by at least one, probably more of these things before Jesus. And I still find myself tempted towards them now. I still find myself even after coming to faith in him and and realizing the full extent of his grace towards me in his sacrificial death on the cross in my place so that I might have life. I'm still tempted towards many of these things that I was tempted towards before I came to know Jesus. Well, you're in good company because that's where we find Abraham as well, visiting the same sin again. And just as we see the same sin repeated in Abraham's life, a similar judgment and confrontation follows. Begins with the Lord judging Abimelech, the one who has taken Sarah to be his wife. Look at verses three through seven. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman with whom you have taken for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an uh, an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself say, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife for he is a prophet so that he will pray for you and you shall live But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So what happens here in these verses after Abraham falls into this same sin of lying about Sarah and Sarah goes right along with it and lies about her relationship with Abraham is God once again judges not Abraham and Sarah, but the person that they have lied to. And God brings a curse upon Abimelech and upon his household, which we find out later means that uh, that among other things, God made it to where none of the women in that entire household, in that kingdom, were able to bear children, much like up until this point in her life, Sarah had been unable to do so. But notice, I think, what is uh, really interesting to me here in these verses is God appears to Abimelech and pronounces this curse, pronounces this judgment against him in this dream, and Abimelech does not question it. He believes it. But do you notice that he justifies his own actions? This is not a man of God. And yet when he is approached by God, what does he say? He says, oh, no no need to worry because I've not yet gone into her. She's still innocent, meaning they've not had sexual relations with one another. 
And God says, yes, I know that you have done this. And he even uses Abimelech's own words in the integrity of your heart, because that's what Abimelech appeals to. He's like, oh, look, I'm good though. I'm really, I've done well. And God reminds him in verse six, he says, it was I who kept you from sinning against me. I did not let you touch her. So God here has brought a curse upon Abimelech's household because of this great sin. We see something similar happen in Genesis 12. In verse 17, we read there, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So again, just as we see a similar sin, we see a similar judgment. The judgment doesn't come upon Abraham. It comes upon, in chapter 12, Pharaoh, and here in chapter 20, Abimelech. Now, let me make something abundantly clear. In in preaching the first um, sermon in this series uh, several months ago now, I warned us. I said one of the great flaws of reading uh, Old Testament passages, Old Testament narratives like this is we so often want to read it and place ourselves in the story. It's important to note, you and I are not Abraham and Sarah. So we should not read ourselves into this text and think that God will somehow curse others around us because of our sin. But we, it is important, I believe, for us to recognize that our sin does often have devastating consequences for others. In some cases, the full brunt of the temporal consequences of our sin are felt by others. You have likely felt the full brunt of the consequences of someone else's sin. This is just what it means to live in a fallen world. And so often, because we don't feel the consequences of our sin immediately, we don't seek to change our behavior. Now, this doesn't all happen in a mere matter of moments. It is a fairly quick event because we know that it's going to happen within a year's time. And so it, it happens immediately after the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah and before Sarah is, is, uh, becomes with child with uh, Isaac. But there was at least some time that unfolds here. And you have to wonder what's going through Abraham's mind where he has once again sinned against his wife. He's once again sinned against uh, Abimelech and, and as he did Pharaoh in chapter 12. What's happening in his mind here? Well, if he knows of this curse, if he knows what is happening in Abimelech's household, it seems as if Abraham just thinks that is fine collateral damage. And sometimes that's the way that we think of our sin. That because our sin isn't directly affecting us here in this moment, then, then God must be okay with me doing what I'm doing. But what we find here is that is not the case at all. God is going to get Abraham's attention through a confrontation with Abimelech over this sin. Pick up back in the story in verse eight. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me the things that ought not be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because uh, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister and a daughter of my father. Uh, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said 
To her, this is the kindness you must do to me at every place of which we come. Say of me, he is my brother. So Abimelech goes uh, in a very similar way that Pharaoh did in Genesis 12, 18, goes and confronts Abraham over this sin, recognizing this true voice of God that, that this curse that is now on his kingdom is because Abraham has lied in this way. And he goes and confronts him and says, what were you thinking? Why would you do this? Do you notice what Abraham doesn't do in Genesis 20? This is what he doesn't do with this, these verses. He doesn't apologize. At least it's not recorded. He doesn't say, I'm sorry. He's not, he's not convicted over his sin. What, what gets expressed out of Abraham's mouth is what so often comes out of ours when we fall into the same temptation time and again. More excuses more justifications, more hemming and hawing about, well, this is the plan that we created. It's, to put it in, in our own language, well, this just is who I am. I am who I am. I, I'm, I, I guess this is just my cross to bear. The, listen, folks, the Bible speaks of crosses. This is just a little aside, okay? This wasn't written in the sermon. The Bible speaks of crosses to bear that we, you know, take up your cross and follow me in the gospel of Luke and other places talking about that. Listen, sin is never going to be that cross. Your cross to bear is not some sin that exists in your life. The Bible says for you to put that stuff to death, okay? Just, just put those things to death. The cross that we bear is our obedient life. The cross that we bear is being different from the world, not acting like the world, we so often do the same exact thing that Abraham does here. We just give excuses. We give justifications. Well, this just is who I am. I, I can't control myself. I, I'm, I'm, I'm just always giving into this. And here he appeals. While in earlier in the chapter, we're not told that he was afraid. Here, Abraham at least gives that as an excuse. He says, there's no fear of God in this place in verse 11. And there, I thought you would kill me. And then he justifies and says, well, I didn't really lie to you. <laughs> I, I didn't really lie. She really is my sister, at least kind of, right? She's the daughter of my father, the passage says, but not the daughter of my mother. And that could either be meaning that Sarah is his half-sister or that Sarah is his adopted sister because he could have considered a woman adopted by his father into their household to be his part sister and still marry her. We're not told here in the text what the case is, but Abraham uses that as justification. He uses that as, as an excuse, as a, as a reason why he has done this great evil. I'd be like, well, he says, why have you brought this upon me? Why would you do this? But just as we have seen so often in Genesis where we uh, experience this pattern of sin and judgment and grace, we see again here another round of unmerited grace towards both Abimelech and Abraham. Abraham return, Abimelech returns Sarah to Abraham and enriches him further. Look at verses 14 through 16. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother. Just stop there. You notice what he calls him? This, the, Abimelech knows what he's saying here. 
The, gospel, the, the, the author of Genesis records this intentionally, I think, for us this way. He follows in that line. That he says, all right, you, you want to go by that excuse, Abraham? I, I'm going to keep with that excuse. I have given your brother, not your husband, a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. So the Lord here, don't, we're going to see the acts of Abimelech, but we need to take a step back and recognize that this is once again, as we saw in Genesis 12, the Lord further offering grace to Abraham through an ungodly person. Abimelech could have, he would have had the power to do so, at least from an earthly perspective. He's the king of Gerar. He could have, just as Pharaoh could have, put Abraham to death for this lie, and yet he chooses to enrich him. And not only enrich him, but enrich Sarah and give Sarah back to him. Both possessions and a thousand pieces of silver as a sign of innocence. Declaring that Sarah was never taken into his marriage bed. And then we see the Lord reverses the curse of Abimelech's household. Verses 17 and 18, the passage ends with, And Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech and and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wounds of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So the Lord shows grace here both to uh, Abraham who doesn't deserve it. And yet God continues in his covenant with Abraham and pours grace upon grace towards him. But he also shows grace to Abimelech who looked at himself and said, see, I, I didn't really do anything out of the integrity of my own heart. I never took her to be my wife. And God says, that was because of me, you fool. And yet, because of Abraham's prayer towards God, Abimelech and all in his household are healed, once again showing us the grace of God towards those who do not deserve it. So what? In Jesus, we find an abundance of grace that saves us completely and empowers us in our ongoing battle against the flesh. It's important for us to take this narrative in the Old Testament text and to view it through the lens of the gospel proclaimed so clearly in the New Testament. That we look back on the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus and we recognize the greatest display of God's grace is Jesus. As John 1, 16 says, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. You may read Genesis 20 and it, it, you know, Genesis 20, this story of Abraham and Abimelech is not one of the more prominent stories in the 50 chapters of Genesis. Last week, we looked at Sodom and Gomorrah and you don't have to have been around the church even at all really to maybe know that story because it has become so popularized. But we get just one chapter later and we get, who's this Abimelech guy and where's this Gerar and who, why is Abraham calling his wife his sister? Not, not so much of a common story that we would think of in the story of Abraham in the account of Genesis. But we, we, so we approach this story maybe with some fresh eyes, but it's important for us as we want to think about application to look at it backwards through Jesus. Because we look at this happen 
now not only once in Genesis 12, but a second time in Genesis 20, and that this was kind of their scheme and their plan all along. It's revealed to us here in this text that, that this was what Abraham and Sarah were going to do all the way back going to their homeland in Mesopotamia. And you may read this story, you may be watching with us and, and just thinking, you know, I'm, I'm curious about, uh, about what the Bible has to say during, during all this time. And you may read this story and think, why in the world would God show such grace to somebody that would not only sin this grievously once in Genesis 12, but do it a second time in Genesis 20? And this isn't a minor thing. I mean, this guy gave his wife away, lied about his relationship with her. This is a major thing. Why would God show this kind of grace? Well, when we as New Testament people look back on this story through Jesus, we know why. It's because God is that gracious towards us. We should ask the same why question about Jesus on the cross. Why in the world would God send his one and only son to die in my place? Because I certainly don't deserve it. Listen, Abraham was not deserving of the grace of God offered to him in Genesis 20. He wasn't deserving of the grace of God in Genesis 12 the first time that God gave it to him. And yet God gives it to him anyway just as God gives to us grace in Jesus. But let this be an encouragement to you this morning because I know that there are people who hear the good news of the gospel. They hear that Jesus died in their place and they think, well, if you only knew how bad I really was, if you only knew how often I fall into great and grievous sin, if you only knew how many of those sins in Romans 1 marked my life, that there's no way that God's grace could cover all of that. There's no way that Jesus' death could make me right with God. Yes, it can, because he offers to you through the person of Jesus Christ, grace upon grace. He offers to you grace in Genesis 12, and he offers to you grace in Genesis 20. Because this is the God of abundant grace that we serve He offers that to you today, lost person. He offers that to you today to come to him and to believe and to have all of your sins, past, present, and future, covered by the blood of Jesus so that you may live grace upon grace. Now, for the many in the room watching with us live right now who who are believers, who have experienced that grace, who find themselves in a very similar situation to Abraham, right? That you have your life before covenant, you have your life after covenant. And you still say, I still see so much of my actions uh, presently that I saw before coming to Jesus. Yeah, I've gotten a handle on some of it. Yes, I've been made more into the image of Christ, but oh, I've still got such a long way to go. Listen, Genesis 20 doesn't get to be our excuse. Abraham makes excuses here. Abraham justifies his actions here. Don't follow in his footsteps. Genesis 20 doesn't get to be our excuse and say, well, if Abraham did it, it must be okay for me to do it. No, as believers, we should never be satisfied with a life marked by repeated sin. We should find joy in the fact that God offers us grace upon grace and that nothing will separate us from him, but we should also continue to strive for godliness. 
with the purifying help of the Holy Spirit that indwells in each one of us. The Apostle Paul addresses this idea in Galatians chapter 5. When he writes to that church, he says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, adultery, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissension, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Just like Romans 1, another list for us that we find at least portions of this that are true about us. He says, but I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Christian, I appeal to you today. Don't be satisfied with falling in the same trap over and over again. Don't, don't, be, don't be satisfied with, with the excuse of saying, well, this is, just, this is who I am. I'm going to have to deal with this struggle and pick myself up every time. No, allow the Holy Spirit to do his purifying work in your life. Now, there's this fine line that we walk. As I end today, here's what I recognize. I've made both an appeal to the lost to come to Jesus through his abundant grace towards them and an encouragement to Christians to walk in the spirit and, and to, to not be satisfied with, with a life that is marked by repeated sin. And here's this line in the middle that, that some of you may look in your lives and, and you may ask this question, well, if I have this repeated sin over and over again, if I'm supposed to be one marked by the spirit, am I really in Christ? And here's how you know. You look in your life and you say, has there been any evidence from that moment where you believed the covenant, your Genesis 15 moment, where the righteousness of Christ was imparted to you, has there been any evidence of belief? Has there been any evidence of growth? If there has, then rest assured in this, the abundant grace of Jesus is enough to cover all of those sins for you. And you should be encouraged today to walk in him, killing the desires of the flesh as he has called us to a life of obedience in him and has given us the means of doing so by the empowering work of his spirit dwelling in us. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning with grateful hearts to you for your abundant grace. I pray God for the man, woman, boy, or girl sitting in here watching with us online who, who would say, I've never experienced that grace before. I've never known of such grace upon grace that is found in Jesus. Would they know it is true today? Would they believe in him and be saved? I pray for the, the many who likely as I began to read this story, didn't identify directly with the sin of Abraham, but certainly looked in their own life as I did as I prepared this sermon and see my own proclivity, my own temptation, how I have often returned to my own vomit. Oh God, would you help us? 
our desire of our heart. It's Galatians 5. That thing we want to do is to be like Jesus. So as we rest in your grace, find joy and comfort there, let us strive forward to live as you have called us to live, not returning to our sin, but leaving it behind us, marching towards godliness, we pray. In Jesus' name.